Last week, we kicked off a new sermon series, uh, an Advent sermon series called Christmas Stories, and we're lo- we looked at the lives of Mary and Joseph and how they received and responded to the news of the surprising pregnancy that would totally change their lives. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at another couple. This couple is in a very different stage of life than Mary and Joseph, but they too are going to receive some very surprising news. If you have a Bible with you today, I want to invite you to grab it or grab that Bible app, but open it with me, if you will, to uh, Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Now, while you're turning there in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, I I just want you to think with me about something for a moment. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever gone through something that is very disappointing? Now, I'm not talking just about something that is a disappointing moment in your day or maybe even a disappointing week, uh, as challenging as that might be. But I'm talking about a long stretch of disappointment, something that you experience difficulties or challenging circumstances for years. What, What I appreciate so much about the scriptures is that they do not shield us from the reality of disappointments. I mean, as you look at the stories of the Bible, you see it out front, in the open, in your face, that disappointments are a reality of the experience that we have as human beings. And this is part of one of the Christmas stories that we're going to be looking at today. Often when you think about the Christmas story, you think about a young couple who are expecting a baby. Mary and Joseph on their way to Bethlehem expecting baby Jesus. But uh, there's another story that's woven through and around that Christmas story. It's not a story of a younger couple, but this is a story of an older couple, and they are not expecting a baby. In fact, their entire married life, they have not expected a baby, and their names are Zachariah and Elizabeth. We're going to be looking at their story today, and it's going to give us an opportunity to think about and to talk about the disappointing seasons in our lives that we experience. And, and I just wonder, are you in one of those seasons right now? I, I just wonder how many of you maybe hear the upbeat Christmas so- songs on the radio and you think to yourself, you know what, I just don't want to have anything to do with this. You see, the reality is that grief gets intensified over the holidays. That if you have lost someone who is important to you and central to your life, you're often able to navigate that grief during the year. But then you get to the Thanksgiving and Christmas season and that grief magnifies. It's so evident that they are not there and they should be. I just wonder how many here today are traveling through a season of deep disappointment. Maybe 2020 started out with chronic back pain, one surgery and one rehab later, and 2020 is ending with chronic back pain. It is a season of disappointment. The finances were tight at the very beginning of the year, but then you experience this layoff and finding another job has been very challenging. The bills are piling up and there just seems to be no end in sight. Friends, I have a suspicion and my suspicion is that most of us don't have an adequate theology of suffering in order to deal with such times. We experience an overwhelmingly challenging season of life and We really don't know how to think through it, and we don't know how God speaks through it 
and uh, what God has designed circumstances like that for. I suspect that most of us lack an adequate theology of suffering that can prepare us for the times when our day arrives, when our season of disappointment comes. We lack an adequate theology of suffering that can sustain us and get us through a challenging season of disappointment. And so I hope that as we look at the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, at least it will help us to start thinking about these disappointments that we can face in life and how God might be using these to accomplish his plans. There are four different biographies of the life of Jesus in the New Testament of your Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew talks a little bit about the birth of Jesus, but Luke, the Gospel of Luke, gives us the most details about the story of baby Jesus, Mary and Joseph, and Bethlehem. While Luke chapter 2 is the manger scene, Luke chapter 1 is the story of this couple that we're going to be looking at today. So your Bible's open in front of you to Luke chapter 1, and here's what we read, beginning in verse 5. It says this, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now, the text here tells us that Zechariah was a priest, but that was not his full-time job. It also tells us here that he is of the division, the priestly division of Abijah. There were 24 divisions of priests, and, and so you would have your day job as a potter or a goldsmith or a farmer or whatever it was. And then there would be two weeks out of the year, if you were of the priestly, one of the priestly families, you would make your way up to Jerusalem for week-long responsibilities of working and serving around the temple. And then you would go back home to your family, back home to your job, back home to work. Being a priest was not a full-time job. It, it, it was something that you would do two weeks out of the year. And there were 24 different divisions of priests. Zechariah is one of the people who would, a couple of times a year, leave his wife and travel to Jerusalem in order to serve the Lord there in the temple. So is there anything else that we can learn about this couple here? Well, in verse 6, it says... And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. You read that and you think, wow, I mean, that's pretty high praise. Both Zechariah and Elizabeth are righteous in the sight of God. And how did they observe the Lord's commandments and statutes? Blamelessly. You say, well, what did that look like? If you take the Ten Commandments, which uh, say things like, you shall honor your father and mother, do not steal, do not bear false witness against your neighbor, don't lie about people. It says that they walked blamelessly in all of the commandments. Honor your father and mother. This wasn't just so that kids would listen to their mom and dad, but this command extended to middle-aged adults who uh, would honor their aging parents. And so it, when it says that Zachariah and Elizabeth kept the commandments blamelessly, I believe that they honored their aging parents uh, as long as their parents were alive. Listen, this honorable couple was deeply faithful. 
You shall not steal. If you went to Zechariah and Elizabeth's house, you would not find things that belonged to other people because they respected other people's property. They're honorable. They're respectful of other people's property. Also, Zechariah and Elizabeth didn't show up to court in town and say things uh, about people that they did not do. Or uh, they they did not um, uh, say things about people that they did do and say that they didn't do them. They were honest. They were truthful. This is a righteous and deeply faithful couple. They are honorable. They are respectful. They are honest. But is there anything else about them that would describe them here in this text? Verse 7 says this, But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in in years. Do you find that troubling? I mean, here is this couple who lived their lives in devotion to God and yet God had withheld one thing that they so desperately longed for, a child. Zechariah and Elizabeth were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child. Friends, we've just encountered a couple who is deeply faithful and yet deeply disappointed. You say, well, Jason, um, you're reading this story, but I I don't really see where it says that they were disappointed. It, It doesn't say that they were disappointed. Maybe they were fine with having no children. I don't think that was the case, though. Because later on in this story, the the term that Elizabeth will use to describe the situation that she is in is reproach, or disgrace, or shame. That's what she feels. Because in the first century in Israel, there was this belief that if you lived a righteous life, that God would reward you with things like kids. But if you lived a life of rebellion against God, that he would withhold his blessing and even withhold the blessing of children. Now, we read about this in just one verse, that they have no children and they are old. But it didn't just happen in one sentence. I mean, infertility for Zechariah and Elizabeth, this happened as a series of uh, monthly disappointments. You get married... You're young. You have your whole life in front of you. I bet they had a a bit of an idea of how they thought things were going to play out for them. Zechariah and Elizabeth had this mental image of what their future was going to look like. Their their future involved kids. Their future involved grandkids. And and then they get to their mid-20s and then to their late-20s. And there is no conception, there is no child. And maybe there are family members and friends who try to offer some consolation to them and they say, hey, you know what, don't worry about it, there's plenty of time. I mean, Kimmy, just down the block, she didn't have her first child until she was 32. There's plenty of time. But then 32 comes and 32 goes. And now they're into their mid-30s. Did people start offering home remedies to them? Did they start saying like, hey, you know what? I know this doctor a couple of villages over. You should go see him. I mean, he, he, can, he can give you some herbs that could help you out here. Or, or maybe because it was believed that, uh, there was, that, that a life of disappointment, or, or, or a disobedience rather, a life of disobedience was um, uh, the outcome of that would be God withholding his blessing. I wonder if there ever came a point where some of the village elders come to Zechariah and kind of pull him aside and they say, hey, 
listen, you just need to repent. I mean, confess your sin. Come clean with God and maybe he'll give you a child then. And so Zachariah searches his soul and he says, you know what? I confess my sins, but I just don't think that that's what this is. You see, the word that Elizabeth will use is this word reproach, the word shame. And that's what they're experiencing. Deeply faithful, deeply disappointed. And they're not young anymore. We're not told how old they are in this story, but they're way past the age when kids are even a consideration. I mean, they say, yeah, you know what? This just isn't going to happen for us. Now, I want to just flip these terms for just a moment here. Zechariah and Elizabeth are deeply faithful and yet deeply disappointed. But they are also deeply disappointed and yet deeply faithful. And I think that's important for us to understand here. Again, in verse 6, it says that Zechariah and Elizabeth were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. It doesn't say that they had been righteous. It says that they were righteous. What that means is that they moved through their disappointing 20s and into their disappointing 30s and into their disappointing 40s. And as they did that, their hearts remained faithful and loyal to God, even through the disappointment. One of the most magnificent marks of your maturity is to continue to move forward in your faith in the midst of a lengthy season of disappointment. The Bible has these incredible examples of individuals who continued to follow God, continued to be faithful in the midst of some very disappointing circumstances. These individuals shine, they shout out to us about how to move forward in our faith, even in disappointing seasons. Just one example of this is a guy by the name of Joseph in the Old Testament. This is different than Mary and Joseph. This is different than, this is many, many years before Mary and Joseph. But this Joseph, he had some brothers and his brothers hated him. He's his dad's favorite, 12 sons, and he's the favorite. His dad gives him this special coat of many colors. But his brothers, they take him and they throw him in this pit. They, they take his coat from him and they sell him into slavery in Egypt. And so now Joseph is no longer the favorite son of a wealthy nomad, but now he is a slave on the auction block in Egypt. He is purchased by a guy named Potiphar. Potiphar has a lot of stuff. Potiphar has a lot of status. And you read it about in that story that the Lord was with Joseph in Potiphar's house. Well, Potiphar, he starts to give Joseph all of these responsibilities because of how faithful he is, because of how great of a worker he is, which I think is really important for us to see. Joseph has been taken away from his family, away from his homeland. And there could have been this temptation where he would say, you know what, I'm just not doing anything. I mean, you you just try to make me work, I'm not going to do any work. But Joseph, in the midst of these disappointing circumstances, remained faithful to the Lord and God used him. Later on, Joseph is falsely accused of something and he's thrown into prison. His story goes from bad to worse, but then the warden of the prison 
puts him in charge of the prison. And it says that the Lord was with Joseph when he was in prison. But, but what I find interesting is how not only was God with Joseph, but Joseph remained faithful when he was in prison. And I think that that is one of the most challenging things that we will ever embrace. How to remain faithful in the midst of difficult and disappointing seasons of life. Stories like Zechariah and Elizabeth, stories like Joseph, whisper to us that such a life can be lived. If all we had about, jo- about Zechariah and Elizabeth are verses 6 and 7 of Luke chapter 1, that would be huge. I mean, holy, upright, faithful to God, and yet they had no child. I mean, what a testimony. And friends, that's not automatic. Here is this couple who stand out as two people who experience this lengthy season of disappointment, decades long. And yet each day they would get up and offer their lives to God, offer their faithfulness to God. Deeply disappointed and yet deeply faithful. Well, the story goes on. It leaves the village of Zechariah and Elizabeth where they lived. Because Zechariah was of this group of the Abijah division of priests and is on rotation in Jerusalem. So uh, Zechariah packs up, he hikes or rides a donkey or whatever it is up to Jerusalem for a week-long service in the temple. We're moving from their house to the temple, and here's what we read, beginning in verse 8. It says, Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So I want to just give you a quick crash course in temple worship in Jerusalem for a moment here. We have a picture of uh, the temple complex that we're going to put up on the screen. And this was lavishly restored by Herod the Great. The temple itself is that big uh, building that's there in the middle. Most people uh, would not have been allowed into the temple. They would stand outside in that big, in the big courtyard surrounding the temple, and they would uh, worship right there. Now, one specific priest on a specific day of the year was allowed to enter into this section of the temple called the holy place, and there, there was just a, a few items of furniture that were there in that room. You would have the lamps that would be lit. There, there would be this table where they put bread on it. And then there was this uh, table of incense, this altar of incense. If you would go all the way through that room and into the room that is in the very back, it was called the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest, that, that was the only person... He was the only one allowed back into the Holy of Holies, and he could only go in there one time a year. But, but the Holy of Holies, in that place, was this one piece of furniture. We have a picture of it as well. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was God saying, I will be your God. Will you be my people? It represented the, the presence and the holiness of God. Now, not, not anyone could just go into the Holy of Holies, only one priest and only one time a year. And there was this massive curtain that would separate 
the Holy of Holies from the holy place. And, the, and, and just on the other side of this curtain was the altar of incense. Well, we have a picture of that that we're going to put up here this morning. Uh, twice a day, 9 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, at the morning and the afternoon sacrifice, one priest was selected to offer uh, this incense on the altar. And my understanding is that if you were a priest, you had one opportunity to do this in your lifetime. And then your name would be removed from the list. And, and so there was, this was like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity here. One priest goes in, he puts incense on the altar, then he puts these coals on the, on the altar, and it, it would create this smoke that would then go up in the air, and it, it was the, the, the priest would offer these prayers for the people. Outside in the courtyard, uh, people would be gathered to pray. And the idea here was that this priest, as he went in and lit the incense and the smoke went up from the incense, it was like the prayers of the people were going and being carried up to God. This is the responsibility that Zechariah has been given on this particular day. He's lighting the incense inside. The people are outside and they are praying. Now, just one other thing that I think is really important to kind of mention here in in this, but during this time, the Jewish people were an occupied people. They were not in charge of their land. The Roman government was in charge of their land. They had to pay taxes to Caesar. Everywhere that they looked, there were buildings and Roman uh, legions reminding them that this place was not theirs. On one hand, the the temple and the Ark of the Covenant stood as a reminder that they're God's chosen people. But on the other hand, there are all of these other reminders in the city of Jerusalem itself and, and, and all throughout Israel that things are just a big mess. I mean, this is a big season of disappointment for these people. And so you just kind of picture this. I mean, here are all of these worshipers outside in the temple courtyards offering up these prayers to God. And inside, there is this older priest, Zechariah. He's in front of this altar of incense. He has experienced a lot of disappointment in his life. And he is offering up prayers for a disappointed people who feel largely forgotten. In a lot of ways, his story is their story, but something absolutely crazy is about to happen in this story. You have the altar of incense in front of you, the people who are outside and they're praying. You have one job. You come in, you dump the incense, dump the coals, offer your prayers to God for yourself and for the people. You turn around, you go back outside, and you bless the people. I mean, maybe it's four jobs, but you kind of get the idea here. And so he places the incense, he places the coals, the smoke begins to rise, and here is what we read beginning in verse 11. And there appeared an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. I mean, you would just imagine how startling this would have been. An angel shows up and you're not expecting it. Verse 12, Zechariah was troubled when he saw this, and fear fell upon him. 
But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So we have this angelic moment here. But I just want to kind of flash forward for 30 years ahead of this point. 30 years from this point. Jesus is about to begin his public ministry. He doesn't just go out and start teaching. He doesn't just go out and start doing miracles. No, Someone comes before him. It's the heart turner, John. Before Jesus begins teaching, John the Baptist, this baby that the angel is talking about here, is going to tell the people, hey, you need to repent. You need to change your heart. You need to change your mind. You need to start living the way that God has created you to live. Turn your heart in preparation for what God is about to do. And people are going down to the Jordan River and they're getting baptized, representing the change in their hearts, the change in their minds that is taking place. These religious leaders come to John and uh, because all of these people are flocking to him, listening to him, being baptized by him. They, they say to John, they say, hey, you know what, are, are you the one? Are, are you the Messiah? John says, no way. I'm not the Messiah. In fact, I'm not even worthy to bow down and, and, and untie his sandals. Comes a day and John points. He sees Jesus walking and he says, hey, you know what? That guy right over there, behold, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The people who are following John, they start following Jesus instead There comes a day where John's followers, they come to him and they say, hey, you know what? All of these people are following Jesus. They're they're, they're leaving you. What are we going to do about this? And John says, well, that's the reason why I'm here. I'm here to point people to him. And, And then he says these powerful words. He says, I must decrease. He must increase. His status must grow. My status must shrink. And that's exactly what was supposed to happen. Now, I don't think that Zechariah lives to see this day or lives to see who his son becomes. But John the Baptist is going to be the heart turner. You might expect Zechariah in this moment to be so excited about this news. I mean, this is so great. We're going to have a son. But that's not what happens. Pick the story up in verse 18, and here's what we read. It says, and Zechariah said to the angel, you shall know this, for, uh, or how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. 
And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. You know, you read that and you think, uh, I mean, isn't that kind of harsh? I mean, John says, how is this going to happen? The angel says, okay, you know what? You're not going to be able to talk for the next nine months. That's going to be the sign that this is going to happen. Now, all of this is happening inside of the temple, but at the same time, there are all of these people, you remember, and they're standing outside of the temple, and they are waiting for Zechariah to come out and to bless them. Verse 21, we read this. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Verse 24 after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for four months or five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, "Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when He looked on me to take away my reproach among the people." You think, well, I mean, why in the world would Elizabeth hide herself for five months here? I mean, was she trying to conceal this pregnancy or something? I don't think so. I think that she is so overwhelmed by what the Lord has done in her life. I think that she can't believe this, that she is in awe. She is in wonder that God has shown his favor to her and taken away her reproach, taken away her shame among the people. All, all of these people had, uh, that they had lived around, uh, many of them had maybe been thinking and asking, well, wonder what they did. I mean, I wonder what sin is in their life that they have not repented of. She says, the Lord has taken away my shame. The Lord has taken away my disgrace. I want to talk for just a moment here about time and trust. Time and trust. You know, there are things that we have the privilege of understanding with distance and time that we cannot understand in the moment. There are difficult, challenging, disruptive, and disappointing seasons that we travel through. And at the time, it makes absolutely no sense at all. But then, after some time and after some distance, sometimes we can look back and we can see why we went through what we did. Now, I'm not saying that every difficulty and every tragedy is going to make sense in this life. But oftentimes, as we look back on things, we can say, okay, I see how God used that. I see what God did there. Maybe it's a difficult circumstance that God uses to grow you and to mature you. A difficult situation that he uses later on in your life in order to allow you to be a blessing to someone else. Maybe he doesn't allow you to have success in a particular area of your life because that would cause you to rely upon yourself and he wants you to rely upon him. This difficult season of life allows you to depend upon him as the anchor of your soul. Sometimes God uses the lens of time in order to accomplish his purposes in our lives. Zechariah and Elizabeth are about to have this baby 
who will grow up to be John the Baptist. And over time, we see how God sovereignly orchestrates this whole situation. So the first word is time, but then there's a second word, and that that second word is trust. Friends, listen, there are some situations that we might go through that we will never understand, that will never make sense this side of heaven. And trust is that gift, that ability in the midst of deep, disappointing seasons to be able to say, God, I'm going to trust you. I don't like what I'm going through. I don't want to go through what I'm going through. I don't understand why I'm going through this, but I trust you. I trust that you're wise. I trust that you're good. I trust that you're loving. I trust that you have a plan that you're working out that is beyond my capacity or my vision to see right now. But God, I trust you. Friends, let me tell you that that is one of the most important prayers that we can pray in the midst of a season of deep disruption, a season of deep disappointment. I don't like this. I don't want this. I don't understand this. But God, I will seek you and I will trust you in the midst of this. And if the miracle in the heart can happen to you like that, you will discover that this deeply disappointing season that you might be going through even right now, can be a greenhouse for growth, a greenhouse for character, a greenhouse for maturity as you remain faithful to the Lord. That you can trust that God is present in your circumstances. That you can trust that He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Let's pray.